Welcome back again to Riley doing a solo thing, because that's right, it's time for one of Riley's book clubs. But we're doing it a bit different this week, uh, because it's Riley's festive book club. And rather than talk about a piece of writing that I like, uh, that it deals with sort of a leftist thought or theory, or sort of describes many of the problems that we might be seeing existing in our society in which we live, blah, 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 blah. Fucking hell. I'm, I, Milo's in the studio with me. Milo's in the studio with me doing something else. He's I'm going to be heckling throughout this book club. God damn it. This is going to be very hard. And the worst thing is that I'm doing a subject that's very easily parody, parodyable because I'm not, like I said, I'm not talking about one of these books that I might recommend. I'm actually talking about a, an academic paper called The End of the Transition Paradigm. Which is you might say what what the hell is that? Well, it's it's a piece of international relations theory because I wanted to talk about the absolute sort of decrepit nonsense that is international relations theory in this one paper um, by this guy Thomas Carruthers. That and he's like a Carnegie uh, endowment goon. Like he was like literally involved in quote unquote democracy promotion in Latin America in the 1980s. Like he is one of the worst people. Um, but he's written this article that actually like is is a rare moment of honesty for the discipline of international relations. Um, so we're gonna go. We're gonna get into it. Um, so international relations is the subject that produces just the most incredible titles uh, for articles in journals like Foreign Policy or Foreign Affairs or whatever. So it can be titled something like you know Norms in Retreat: Changing Paradigms of Global Governance in the WTO and Beyond, or obstinate or obsolete, the fate of the nation state in the case of Western Europe, or something like the honor of dignity, a a statesman reflects on diplomacy after populism. One of those is a real title, and I invite you to guess which one. Because IR is this very pompous, fake academic subject. It's riven with insecurity about whether or not it's a real science, and it's a kind of microcosm about what kinds of scholarship are taken seriously, where the discipline is traditionally cast between liberals who believe that economic integration makes war unprofitable, and the more sort of hardline hawkish thinkers who think that military might is the only thing that matters. And it's a deeply, it's a deeply sort of European or Atlanticist discipline, so Euro-American. So the first IR department was started in the University of Aberystwyth in Wales in, I think, 1919. And the whole point of early sort of IR scholarship was to try and understand precisely what happened in, um, in, in sort of the First World War, how it came about, potentially how it might be stopped in future, but also to like train the sort of these the sort of coterie of diplomats and so on who'd be running uh, the League of Nations, which, as we all know, went very, very well. Now, IR is distinct from what you might call international history. International history is, I think, defined very well uh, by sort of a a favorite figure of mine uh, from the 18th century, Friedrich Schiller, um, who articulated that sort of statement of purpose. Uh, which is that the international historian must select from the stream of events those that exercise an essential, unmistakable, and easily comprehensible influence on the present shape of the world and the situation of the contemporary generation. This is, I think, a basically worthwhile pursuit. International relations sort of is a parody 
of this discipline. It's, it, it's, it's the dubious science of taking these efforts to explain why events happen and treating them like, well, a hard science with sort of very set down and universalizable theories. I'll go through some of the basics. I, I'm going to get to the paper in a few minutes. I just want to talk about the discipline a little bit in general. So realist, quote unquote, realist theories. Um, and I say this with a capital R. I'm not saying they're more realistic than others. It's just this is what they call themselves because they all have brain worms. Realist theories suggest that states basically interact in such a way where they're paranoid about one another because um, the entire international sphere is about survival of the fittest. Um, because so the core contention of international relations that sort of makes it different from um, international history other than just its um, sort of reliance on theory is that it conceives of this sphere called the international uh, that is distinct from others, you know, national, individual, and so on. And the international system is particularly distinct because unlike any other realm of human existence, it's anarchic. That doesn't mean it's chaotic, but it means that a group of basically like objects, so states, are interacting with one another, largely making up the rules as they go along based on their power to do so. There's no cop. You can't call 911 on the United States because, you know, who are you going to call? <laughs> so to speak, you know, in, in global politics, there is no, there's no police force. There's no recourse. You're basically there helping yourself. And if you can't help yourself, then someone else is going to help themselves to what you have. Um, so, you know, how do you punish the USA if it commits a crime against Cuba? How do you call it a crime, moreover, if there are no rules? Uh, so that's actually, that's the one bit of international relations that I think is interesting, which is, it is this, it is the only study of modern, if you like, modern officially recognized bodies that are interacting with no legitimate, no fully legitimate system outside them. I say fully legitimate, not to mean like, you know, the laws of the United States are legitimate, but they're widely believed to be legitimate. And and, and international relations, it's all kind of contested. It's the, it's the murkiest place um, in politics. That's actually kind of interesting. But with their commitment to keeping their discipline sort of having the trappings of science and having the trappings of objectivity, it's basically got the same disease that's rendered modern analytic philosophy a more or less useless discipline, increasingly concerned as it is with navel-gazing and debating how many angels can dance in the head of a pin. Uh, so let's go through a couple of the sort of meta-theories. So there are realist-type theories. I don't mean they're more realistic than others, but they've been called realist because they are all about conflict and how cooperation fails because they're about states being paranoid about one another. I think the fact that they're called realist actually gives a sense of like just how little these people really think that any kind of better world is possible. They're very, very cynical, very, very game theory oriented. Like It all comes out of the Rand Corporation and the work of, uh, of, of Nash on game theory, they see, they see the world in terms of betrayals. And even the fact that like the other schools of international relations accept the, fa the, um, the, the title that this one school is the realists, you know, it's, it, it's sort of, it betrays the, this, this feeling that, well, even the liberals just sort of think that they're failures. This is not very different from sort of how most liberals act. Anyway, so realist theories are all about... Um, looking at the way states interact in terms of uh, absolute versus relative gains. If I'm going to strike a deal with you and I gain and you gain a little bit more, I won't strike that deal because you're going to might use that little bit more to kill me. And states that are mistrustful of others don't get killed because they're more cautious. It's basically Darwin. 
um, and some one of the sort of more popular feel like applied thinkers so like there are theorists there are guys like kenneth waltz or john mearsheimer who um international relations scholars who are listening to this or people who've done useless like degrees like i have well like ah, i know who those people are of course there are there are you know ir 101 but most people have never heard of them because they're not really relevant except of course to the people who make the policies that kill almost everyone um these guys are the the eggheads in the ivory tower they just sort of write and they might advise an occasional president, but they mainly just do the thinking. A more interesting example of a realist is a guy called George Kennan. Um, now, Kennan was a, um, a, a figure in the State Department throughout the uh, middle of the 20th century. And he was, you know, a fucking absolute ghoul. He was like a little junior Kissinger. Um, and he defined the, or he helped define the uh, Truman Doctrine of containing the Soviet Union. Uh, and he sent this famous missive called the Long Telegram, called the Sources of Soviet Conduct, where he basically sort of was hand-wringing that the Soviets were, well, actually have a selection from it. So he says, the main element of any United States policy toward the Soviet Union must be a long-term, patient but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies. Soviet pressure against the free institutions of the Western world is something that can be contained by the adroit and vigilant application of counterforce at a series of constantly shifting geographical and political points corresponding to the shifts and maneuvers of Soviet policy, but which cannot be charmed or talked out of existence. So there are a few sort of, there's a lot going on in that one sort of relatively prominent passage from the long telegram. Number one is that the, it, it, having a sort of this realist theory of international relations sort of defined by all of these eggheads who no one cares about, George Kennan had a language where he could say that, well, the Russians are naturally expansive, and so we must regrettably be expansive. It's the language of the U.S. being unfortunately dragged into wars it doesn't really want to fight. The idea that, oh, the U.S. has gotten bogged down in Vietnam. Oh, no, we've, we've been forced to sort of, you know... Um, build missiles and point them at Cuba. At, we've been forced to, um, you know, arm the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Oh, no, we didn't want to do all this, but we had to. Um, and you can just see it's, it's this firm but vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies. So, well, they're, not, they're violent. We must be equally violent. It's, it, 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 it prevents even the possibility of talking about detente because it removes the possibility of trust. But also... You can, we talk about this sort of the vigilant application of counterforce. Well, this is just setting up the whole idea of we need to occupy or engage in regime change more or less everywhere. You know, this one statement is responsible for untold millions of deaths throughout the 20th century. This one sentence based on this one theory of, of international relations. Or rather, you could say it's based on the U.S. national interest that sort of theorists of international relations then spend a lot of time dressing up as a kind of scientific theory. Well, like, oh, actually, U.S. interests, well, it's just science, guys. I'm just doing, I'm just, I've run the numbers, and apparently we have to invade uh, Vietnam and bomb Cambodia. So liberal theories, on the other hand, and again, much like realist theories are sort of a title, liberal theories are also a title because they're not necessarily, they're not necessarily like liberal as we might understand them. Because IR theory is all about relative gains uh, enjoyed by states. So liberal theories just suggest the opposite of realist theories, which is that states only care about absolute gains, which means that I'm going to, if, 
you know, we're in a deal and I gain five and you gain six, well, that's fine because I'm still better off than I was before. It doesn't matter that you're a little bit better off than I am because they say that and, and, and the way they can do that is they can create institutions to constrain one another's behavior. So like the World Trade Organization creates um, sets of frameworks in which they can interact where, you know, their behavior will be known. There's the shadow of the future. So it's like the shadow of the future refers to the fact that, yeah, if I betray you now, then everyone's going to know I'm untrustworthy, where sort of states can become interdependent on one another and then not um, attack each other over time. Now, once again, you know, this has been you know, kind of right, sort of, not in any meaningful sense, because it, it really only describes states that are already pretty much aligned. You couldn't possibly use this theory to, to tell you anything about the relationship between, say, you know, America and you know, North Korea. Um, but that's, again, that's because these, these theories are kind of they're very rooted in late 20th century Europe, which is why they're so fundamentally bellicose, I think. Um, so one of the one of the one of the most prominent theories of, of this sort of school, uh, and one that I think many of the listeners to this podcast will have probably heard of, is called the democratic peace theory, which l- suggests that democracies just don't go to war with other democracies, right? Or like, you know, um, because we have institutions in common, because we're able to trust one another, because we can interact with each other, etc., etc., etc. Again, it, it's. It, it's utterly absurd. I mean, it's complete nonsense. You know, what do we call American democracy promotion in Chile or when they installed Pinochet or in Iran when they installed the Shah? In fact, you know, it's democracies don't go to war when the United States already likes them, basically. Uh, <clears throat> and 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 it's it's just sort of a, ca- a cape for power. And it's again, it's something that when we go into the article, um, we'll sort of see more more nakedly as a grift um but these are these are people like Anne marie slaughter uh and samantha power they're the kinds of people who believe these things the sort of obama era un un um officials who who are sort of very concerned about about democracy promotion and finally uh there are constructivist theories um which suggest that state behavior will define how other states act uh, the most famous expression from the most famous paper in the constructivist sort of universe is anarchy is what states make of it. So it means that anarchy isn't inherently combative. Um, like the realists think an anarchy isn't inherently um, sort of doesn't inherently sort of lead to cooperation over time amongst like-minded states like the liberals think. It's just sort of it can go either way. And so really what we have is we have a whole discipline whose paradigms, when taken together, basically explain nothing because they say, well, it can be a variety of ways depending on a bunch of circumstances that are always different. It has no explanatory power. It's hilarious that, uh, that DPhils and PhDs in this are still getting funded. But that's the problem. International relations is less of a science and more of a social club. Um, because all of these meta theories have spawned millions of interpretations of people who are sort of friends with one another, who sort of end up advising various presidents. The realists advise the Republicans and the liberals advise the Democrats. And they all just sort of reinforce that the, the worldviews they already have and making them seem scientific. Um, and they all come from the same sort of very small set of elite schools. And they all publish the same kinds of articles in a very small set of elite journals. So I'm talking about like uh, the Kennedy School... Uh, London School of Economics is a good IR department. Um, 
uh, 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 Columbia. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's the usual ones, the, the, the usual suspects. And they all sort of jack off into a coffin and a bunch of them are in skull and bones and all this, that and the other. And they're incredibly elitist, but this gives them this ridiculously blinkered um, view of global politics because their, their status as the establishment of sort of vaunted IR theory is basically really just comes down to um, be uh, just comes down to using scientific language to justify your party's policies and being sort of a generally good dinner party conversationalist or being able to win any pub quiz round when it comes to the, the politics section, you know, and further it just prepares you for a job in the diplomatic corps where you kind of have a, a sort of priesthood language to talk to your counterparts in other countries. You know, you can reference the same, the same, the same articles that you all read in foreign policy. Um, and, it, it, and of course, it should be of no surprise to anyone that Marxism is completely sidelined in this whole, um, this whole, this whole field of study. And I think, I think that's for two reasons. The, the one usual one is that sort of Marxism is often sort of quite sidelined in a lot of prestigious politics departments. Just I think they're still afraid of the Cold War. They're worried that McCarthy might sort of burst out of his grave and, you know, do McCarthyism again, like Brendan O'Neill keeps talking about. Um, but the other issue is that like IR tends to conceive of the international as this unique sphere that's distinct from the domestic sphere entirely. And it's it's it wouldn't it would be weird for a Marxist to take that point of view because a Marxist would see these things as sort of put together. A Marxist would see would not really be interested in sort of separating out the international is a unique sphere with its own sui generis uh, uh, tendencies that don't arise or aren't connected to, say, the domestic relations of production. Um, that's not to say there are no I Marxist IR theorists. There are plenty of them. Um, it's just they I wouldn't they, I wouldn't say they've really had a lot of mainstream impact apart from uh, like the sort of realists and the liberals and even the constructivists have had. Uh, an example of a, of a couple uh, is Emmanuel Wallerstein, who wrote a book on what he calls world systems theory, uh, which argues basically just like there is a core and periphery of nations whose relationships with one another are similar to that of like a bourgeoisie and working class within a state. So, you know, the, the core nations, you know, Western Europe, uh, America, Canada, Japan, Australia, whatever, whatever, whatever the usual, um, basically have an exploitative relationship with everywhere else. And that the international order kind of arises like the superstructure arises out of an economic base that's created by capitalism at home. Um, so that's, that's an example of a Marxist IR theory that is distinctly IR because it applies the Marxist principles to the international sphere. But like I said, it's not that common. Again, there are some brilliant Marxist IR scholars and we can talk about it all day. But I would say it's been pretty ghettoized and has not really been taken seriously enough in the halls of power. People certainly aren't granted DPhils and PhDs in it uh, like they are for producing works that are called like, you know, the, the, the dignity of power, hard choices and genocide prevention and, you know, whatever. So now we get to the paper. This paper, like I said, is called The End of the Transition Paradigm. It's from the early 2000s and it's about why democracy is not necessarily a durable condition. This is a very odd choice for Commie Book Club, I know. But that's because it's Festive Book Club. Um, and, and Thomas Carruthers, the author of this book, you know, like I said, he's a Carnegie Endowment ghoul with a history of democracy promotion in 80s Latin America. It's basically the opposite of the kind of thing I would ordinarily talk about. But looking back on sort of talking about what IR is, it's very uncommon, I think, for a paper, especially one that is sort of quite short and powerful as this one is. It's like, 12 pages long, um, to 
really just sort of explode some of the pretensions of this discipline. So I guess you could say this, if you wanted to seat this somewhere, I'd say this is, it's not really realist, it's not really liberal. Um, I'd say it's more, think of it as a response to liberal assumptions uh, about democracies and the broader sort of democratic peace study. Because the democratic peace study is like, well, it's basically the democratic peace is like Fukuyama, you know, the world is democratizing, the world is becoming more liberal, history is going that way, there's nothing you can do about it, and by the way, it's over. Um, This is, I think, you know, people have been saying in 2016, oh, history, history started again. You know, it's, well, Carruthers have been saying it since about 2003, you know, this is someone who has been actually relatively on it. Again, even though he's evil. So let's, uh, let, let's, let's start the article. He opens the article by saying, In the last quarter of the 20th century, trends in seven different regions converged to change the political landscape of the world. Now, here are the trends. One, the fall of right-wing authoritarian regimes in Southern Europe in the mid-1970s. So this would be like Portugal, uh, Salazar. Um, the replacement of military dictatorships by elected civilian governments across Latin America from the late 1970s through the late 1980s. Again, wonder who put those military dictatorships there. Three, the decline of authoritarian rule in parts of East and South Asia starting in the mid-1980s, the collapse of communist regimes in Eastern Europe at the end of the 1980s, the breakup of the Soviet Union and the establishment of the post-Soviet republics in 91, and the decline of one-party regimes in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa in the first half of the 1990s, and a weak but liberalizing trend in some Middle Eastern countries in the 1990s. And we know where that went. This was referred to uh, as the third wave of democratization by uh, Samuel Huntington a theorist who you may be familiar with for creating the clash of civilizations thesis, which basically said that Islam couldn't permit the West to exist because it was a, they hate our freedom basically. So the guy who gave George, who sort of, you know, the OG, they hate our freedom guy um, also was that was this sort of, Oh, there's this wave of democratization, by the way. Yeah. Samuel Huntington, another ghoul, Harvard guy. Anyway. And so the, the sort of the, the U.S. government and the U.S. foreign policy community sort of looked at those seven trends and they said, the third wave of democracy is here. Uh, we need a, an analytical framework to conceptualize and respond to like this. What's going on? What is, what's generalizable about this? Even like going back to Schiller, right? What events can we extract from the stream of history to put together and understand why all of a sudden everything seems much more democratic? So Carruthers goes on. Because it was derived principally from their own interpretations of the patterns of democratic change taking place, but also to a lesser extent from the early works of the emergent academic field of, and I shit you not, this is the title, Transitology, the study of transitions to democracy. A, again, I, I really do hope some of you are shaking your heads right now because it, it's such a, an obvious nonsense field. Uh, Right. So democracy promoters extended this model of transition as a universal paradigm for understanding democratization. Um, And it became very ubiquitous in U.S. policy circles as a way of talking about, thinking about and designing sort of U.S. democracy promoting interventions in the process of political change around the world. Now, we when we think of U.S. democracy promoting interventions, we I think often immediately tend to think of, you know, the them painting democracy on a series of bombs and then dropping them a bunch of schools, which is quite often when the U.S. says we're promoting democracy, that is what they're doing. Um, But there are other, you might say, pro-democracy interventions. 
that these would be undertaken not by the military, but by like US aid, um, to a lesser extent, the State Department, where it would just be like, they would like look at a country and say, okay, we're going to fund your elections. We're going to, we're going to try to set up civil society groups. I mean, inevitably, it was still a tool of US foreign policy. It was still an imperialist endeavor. But I think this is what Carruthers is talking about mainly is soft imperialism. Like he is quite admirably, he does recognize um, the U the United States' role in sort of creating, well, anti democracies, uh, at least in, um, in in South America. He notably doesn't mention Iran, uh, but never mind. Um, so these are the kinds of things we're talking about these these interventions. Uh, so many countries, he goes on, that policymakers and aid practitioners consist in calling. To, persist in calling transitional are not in transition to democracy and of the democratic transitions that are underway, most of them aren't following the model. So what is the model? What are the assumptions that define the transition paradigm? Uh, the first, which is the umbrella for all the others, is that any country moving away from dictatorial rule can be considered a country in transition toward democracy. So already, like the, the, it's the, at base, it's teleological, which um, means it is a process that is based around going to a defined endpoint. So teleology is something that, like, you get talked about a lot in, um, in, 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 in ancient Greece, even. So, like, Aristotle was a very teleological thinker. He would think that, okay, um, an, an acorn contains within it an oak tree. Its destiny is to become an oak tree. The, the teleology of the acorn is to become an oak tree. It can go no other. It can't become a you know, mulberry bush. It can't become a guy. It must become an oak tree. And so they had this very almost Aristotelian view of dictatorship as inevitably producing democracy and it doing it in the same way. Uh, and that's sort of the second assumption, is that democratization tends to unfold in a set sequence of stages, which he referred to as opening, breakthrough, and consolidation. So what we mean when we talk about opening is this is, you know, a period of sort of political liberalization where cracks sort of might appear in the ruling regime. They might sort of give accession to sort of civil society groups to demonstrate in public or whatever. Um, the breakthrough is the collapse of the regime and the emergence of like new democratic system where they a new government might actually come to power. There might be a national election. And then the consolidation is the then building of like the organs of state that create what we might think of as a functioning democracy, right? Where, you know, they write a constitution and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, it's they're becoming more like the United States. Look at that. Isn't that lovely? Um, and and related to this core sequence of democratization, because they think it always goes the same way. There's a dictator. The dictator is inevitably opposed by the people. Um, that people that uh, opposition leads to eventually to a successful breakthrough, and then that leads to a consolidation of of a of, of a democratic society. Um, and the third assumption, and this is, I think, one of the really important ones that makes the sort of whole school of transitology uh, a complete sort of a pants on head stupid uh, uh, bird brained point of view which is that they believe it they, they have this core belief that in the determinative power of elections and democracy promoters basically like they just are like oh, it's just elections are democracy and if we can do elections then democracy just sort of happens you know it's why in Afghanistan 
you know, you'll, we, we sort of, they'll be like, okay, well, we need to make elections in Afghanistan. But then we find that people just sort of uh, don't trust the system that they're voting in, don't trust the candidates they're voting for, that a lot of the candidates that are being voted for are just local warlords that we've empowered. A lot of people can't vote freely because they're threatened. And that a lot of the people that they vote for just, you know, work in their own, they just self-deal. They just work in their own interest because, you know, we've turned it into an anarchic hellscape, right? So it's, it's the, the determinative power of elections is, well, you could say as a sort of, um, uh, if it's your instrumental variable, it's dog shit because there are so, so many countries that have elect either have elections that are sham. So, you know, like, you no know, Hosni Mubarak getting, you know, 100% of the vote every time. Wild. Um, or elections that, yeah, might even be functional, but that are, are just sort of window dressing on as sort of societies that are fundamentally non-democratic. Um, the fourth assumption, and this sort of is related uh, to the third assumption, is that the underlying conditions, he writes, in transitional countries, their economic level, political history, institutional legacies, ethnic makeup, sociocultural traditions, and other structural features will not be major factors near the onset or the outcome of the transition process. So they, this is, I think, a key liberal international relations theory characteristic, which is that they think that these processes, in fact, it's a key international relations character, theory characteristic, because if you're going to think about the international, etc., that, they, that there is just this process that happens at this third level, at this international level of democratization, and that it sort of pulls, it yanks states up from one state, one sort of uh, state of being as a dictatorship uh, to a democracy, right? It's like, you're a democracy now. Um, and that it just sort of, and it happens like a science. Um, and it happens almost like a law of physics. It's like, well, countries become democracies and they do them this way. And it's much akin to if I was holding a ball and I dropped the ball. Well, of course, the ball always falls the same way because, well, this is the ball and that's the earth and gravity pulls the ball towards the earth. And it's always going to pull it in the same way because, well, it's, it just pulls it down. Um, and, and the tendency of... and. I'm aware this is sort of in between international politics and international relations, but in, in, in reality, the line is always very blurred. Um, the, the, the tendency of, of international political studies to sort of really just grasp onto this um, identity as a science uh, essentially just means that we're, we, we see a very complex and historically determined, unsure um, sort of product of the contestation of power which is the transition of a country from one system of government to another as a sort of fundamentally set down thing that we can just sort of set and forget. We just have to help them have elections and we can just fund it. Um, and and then we, we, the dynamism, and he says, and remarkable scope of the third wave buried old deterministic and culturally noxious assumptions about democracy, such as that only countries in the American style middle class or a heritage of Protestant individualism could become democratic. This was the way of thinking, sort of, you might say, in the middle of the 20th century and earlier, which was, oh, well, they're not ready for democracy. This sort of, this almost goes back to like John Stuart Mill, who was writing about how, well, we can be free in the West, but the savages aren't ready to be free, so we have to colonize them. This same point of view just never really got challenged, even when international relations was supposedly becoming much more scientific in the middle of the 20th century. They just had this view um, that basically to be a democracy, you needed to be Western. 
Uh, and Carruthers here sort of does, sort of gives the this sort of school of transitology credit for saying, okay, well, they didn't actually assume all of this stuff. Um, and for policymakers and aid practitioners, this this was a new outlook, and it was a break from this long-standing Cold War mindset that most countries in the developing world just weren't ready for democracy. Uh, which again, and again, Carruthers. The reason I want to read this paper is that Carruthers is so honest about sort of just of saying the of talking about the the U.S.'s relationship with the idea of democracy promotion around the world. He says this mindset dovetailed with U.S. policies of propping up anti-communist dictators around the world. Uh, so for both the scholarly and policy communities, this new no preconditions. So you don't need to not be. Um, ready for democracy, to get ready for democracy, outlook was gratifyingly optimistic and sort of liberated them from their old, frankly, you know, racist and imperialist assumptions, even though it gave way to new forms of racism and imperialism, as we all know. But that's it. So we went from a view that democracy was specifically anti-communist to a view of democracy that was vague, poorly defined, and based in blanket assumptions about the importance of voting. Um, And... So that's sort of the fourth assumption, which is, I think, the most interesting one. Uh, and finally, the, is the assumption that I think is related to the fourth, uh, which is that the transition paradigm rests on the assumption that the democratic institutions that are making up this third wave are being built on coherent functioning states. And so that basically just, again, I'll go back to the subject, uh, the example of Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan has historically been a very uh, difficult state to govern. Uh, if you're at all interested in it, I... Uh, my favorite book on the country is by a guy called Thomas Barfield, and it's just called Afghanistan. Um, but you know, Afghanistan is without going into too much detail. It's it's it it has been governed more in the style of sort of Persian satrapies, where a central um, a, a a central a central leader, uh, usually from one of of two Pashto tribes, Pashtun tribes, um, would consult would consolidate power through sort of delegation and negotiation with the regions. It was a functioning society, but it wasn't a Westphalian state as we might know it. Um, Westphalian state is the state as defined by the Treaty of Westphalia, which is the area in which one ruler has sort of sovereignty and can conduct the conduct the conduct of others so they can create laws and so on. So that's it was a treaty in Europe that sort of gave us our modern idea of what a state is. So our idea of what a state is then is European and our idea of what democracy is, is sort of European. Our international relations um, assumptions were sort of quite European. And we just assumed that there'd be functioning states elsewhere. Like I said, Afghanistan just was never a functioning state in the Westphalian sense. It was a functioning society, um, but it was much more sort of negotiated. But it has taken sort of so many different forms of having a functioning society that were nothing like a Westphalian state. So, for example... Uh, the Afghan Empire under Ahmad Shah Durrani um, in the 18th century was um, sort of much more about sort of receiving fealty and extracting tribute, whereas um, Abdur Rahman's rule in the 19th century was much more like a sort of series of military despotism where he basically killed everyone and displaced the entire Hazara population. So like, the, it's, Afghanistan has been both of those things within the space of a, a hundred years of one another um, based on different styles of ruling that were not necessarily these um, Westphalian ones. 
And so the assumption of the transition paradigm that the societies it was going to be sort of converting to democracy naturally just had these Westphalian states, they were natural, sort of failed to take into account that the sort of export of the Westphalian state around the world was a relatively um, recent invention. And it's not to say that these other societies aren't capable of having a Westphalian state. I mean, you know, I think a Westphalian state might have slotted on to Abdurrahman's um, uh, uh, government quite well, you know, and Westphalian states have sort of in different modes slid on to um, onto certain sort of post-colonial countries sort of more effectively or less effectively or what have you. I think it's the assumption that this is the natural mode of sort of human society is one that just has completely bitten, um, you might call Western democracy promoters in the ass, sort of repeatedly, and it just made them look really, really stupid in public a lot. So Carruthers sort of says, okay, those are the assumptions. So taken together, he says, the political trajectories of most third wave countries uh, call into serious doubt the transition paradigm. That This is apparent if we revisit the major assumptions underlying the paradigm in light of the fact that well, quite simply, uh, countries have either devolved into what he called um, feckless pluralism, which was, yes, there are free and open elections, but they're largely elite affairs that you know, aren't really connected to, to anyone's day-to-day experiences. It's all, yeah, we have a million different parties, but you, it's, it's not really, it's, it's still a very um, despotic almost mode of of politics, even if there is this sort of facade of democracy over it. Um, and then you also have what he calls dominant power politics, where it's there is a one political grouping, whether it's a movement, a party, an extended family, or a single leader, sort of dominates the system in such a way that there appears to be little alteration of, of power in the foreseeable future. But realistically, like the, whether we're talking about sort of what he calls feckless pluralism or, or dominant power um, politics, in both cases, the state is not an effective deliverer of people's sort of day-to-day needs. You know, he says that, that so for example, um, the problem in, is, is often bureaucracy decaying under the stagnancy of a de facto one-party rule in a dominant power society, um, whereas in sort of a feckless pluralist society, you actually have a disorganized, unstable state. Um, so someone that might have like constant turnover of ministers, you know, and so it, it's it, it in both in both cases sort of you might have democracy, but you have very little governance. Um, and, you know, he, he goes through sort of where these different um, where these different modes obtain. I mean, I, I don't think it's as interesting to go through them just because, well, most of the countries that he might be citing, they've changed sort of multiple times over and over again. But so we might look at something like uh, the Philippines with Duterte. You know, it was it has it has become what you might say is a, a very much a dominant power politics system. Whereas in somewhere like, um, you know, like Lebanon, you might say we've got feckless pluralism. But that's also not to say that sort of Western, more developed country, not more developed, Western countries sort of aren't um, sort of prone to this as well. I mean, what it, how would we characterize the United States? I mean, you know, the state certainly isn't delivering what people need. But one thing I think Carruthers didn't expect, because the, the notable thing about the, um, about the, the, the countries that he cites are that they're all sort of post-colonial they're all transition. They're all sort of former Soviet, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, 
but he sort of leaves out the West. Well, of course he does, because he thinks that the West is what the model is and that all these countries will sort of, well, that the theory says all these countries will naturally emulate the model. And he says, well, no, they won't. But what he didn't expect was that the model would break down. So, I mean, you can sort of think about thinking about sort of dominant power politics or feckless pluralism. You can apply that to um, the United States uh, after the recent midterms where uh, in state houses and state legislatures um, across uh, across the country, you know, ousted Republicans are now, you know, are now radically curtailing the powers of the um, of the newly elected Democrats sort of before they, you know, leave office in January. And yeah, maybe it'll get challenged by the courts. But like or but the fact is, you know, laws and norms of of sort of traditional participatory democracy are just becoming less and less um, valid or less and less powerful in the United States. So, you know, it's it's not just the transition paradigm that we can um, that, that we we have to discard when we read Carruthers, but it's we can say, oh well this is this is happening to us too. The the, the idea that sort of democracy is just a, a place you get to. It's like, well we have democracy, we're at the end of the game. Uh, we're done playing now. Uh, as opposed to a process, as opposed to something that you look to extend and deepen, um, as opposed to something that you sort of do and fight for, because you know, it's, if your democracy is important, and I mean, look, we we tend to sort of talk about democracy in economic terms on this podcast, because well, of course, I'm a fucking Marxist, um, and so and, and the, we we sort of know intuitively that sort of these things need to be pushed for. But I think it's important to remember that sort of these political rights, whatever they are, you know, um, they are being eroded from the right and that we cannot imagine that our own democracy is safe or stable uh, in the face of all of these um, all of these erosions. Right. So back to Carruthers. Um he says, the various assumed component processes of consolidation, such as political party development, civil society strengthening, judicial reform, and media development, almost never conform to the technocratic ideal of rational sequences on which the indicator frameworks and strategic objectives of democracy promoters are built. Instead, they are chaotic processes of change that go backwards and sideways as much as forward and not do so in any regular manner. And, I mean, I feel like this comes to the heart of why sort of international relations or the desire to do politics as a science um, is a sort of a doomed a doomed ambition. Now, I don't mean that you can't be, say, a scientific socialist. I don't mean that you can't say sort of, well, we are going to we are going to understand sort of like where wealth goes. We're going to understand sort of what the effects of inequality are. We're going to sort of hold these things as true, but rather to sort of take these um, contingent, uh, sort of complex power-related processes. When I say power-related, like you might say U.S. interest-related processes, and dress them up in the language of science. Um, sort of having these theories of democracy promotion or whatever. That it's just, it, it has no explanatory value because, you know, they are chaotic processes of change that sort of go backwards and sideways just as much as forward and not in any regular manner. And so what's the point of trying to create a theory where it says, well, here are the steps and here are the, um, 
and here are the the indicators. And you know, when you pass sixty on the on the Freedom House scale, you have freedom. You have a democracy. It doesn't make any kind of sense. Um, and so, you know, it 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 sort of it it sort of rips back the cloak a little bit on saying that. Well, really, what we're doing here is we're trying to say that the world is the United States uh, and to a lesser extent Britain. Well, I mean, to a, as great an extent, but well, Britain matters less. Um, the way these countries see the world is natural, uh, and the way that other countries are is naturally underdeveloped. And so the whole thing just exists as this cover for imperialism. Anyway, let's go on. So he says, you know, in many of these transitional countries, Regular, genuine elections are held, but political participation beyond voting remains shallow and governmental accountability is weak. Now, what this reminds me of completely is, I think, a lot of the ways in which liberals think we have to defend our democracies uh, here in the in the, the sort of Atlanticist world. You know, it's, um, they say, well, get out there and vote. Vote, vote, vote. You know, we're gonna, I'm going to queue up at, at, at Starbucks and I'm going to make you write, go vote on my cup. And I'm going to ask you if you voted. And I'm going to yell at you if you didn't. And I'm going to march on Parliament. And I'm going to ask them to please do the thing that I've asked for uh, because I voted for you. And they think they do. Th- there is this liberal idea that, ele- that democracy equals elections. Voting equals democracy. And so the most you can do is vote. And if you sort of try to advance any kind of interest beyond that, if you try to make the state work for you, then, well, you're not doing democracy. You're getting in the way of democracy. We need to leave it to the technocrats. We need to leave it to the experts. But I think as <laughs> Thomas Carruthers is showing... Those experts are just sort of constantly and embarrassingly wrong all the time about more or less everything. Anyway, so let's go on. So he says, The wide gulf between political elites and citizens in many of these countries turns out to be rooted in structural conditions such as concentration of wealth or certain sociocultural traditions that elections themselves do not overcome. I credit the, the latter part less. I mean, you know, America has got a... Socio America and the UK have some pretty fucking anti-democratic socio-cultural traditions, and yet he still seems fine calling us a robust democracy. But I really want to point to that first one, where he says, the wide gulf between political elites and citizens in many of these countries turns out to be rooted in structural conditions, such as the concentration of wealth. Interesting. A robust democracy requires robust economic equality. He's actually kind of recognizing, he's forced to recognize when reckoning with the failure of his colleague's ability to sort of do politics as a science, uh, sort of do politics as a science without power, just looking at it in the abstract of like, oh, well, it, power doesn't matter because countries naturally transition from dictatorship to democracy, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, it's you need to have these things like um, like sort of robust economic equality, or as we might call it, economic democratization, or else the state's probably not going to work for people. I mean, the state's working for fewer and fewer people as inequality has gotten worse and worse in the US and UK. I mean, I think these things are not at all unconnected. So let's carry on. Ever since the preconditions for democracy were enthusiastically banished in the heady days of the, er- of the third wave, a contrary reality, the fact that various structural conditions clearly weigh heavily in shaping political outcomes, has been working its way back in. Looking at the more successful recent cases of democratization, for example, which tend to be found in uh, Central Europe, uh, the Southern Cone, this is what they call Latin America, I don't know why, uh, or East Asia, it is clear that relative economic wealth, as well as past experience with political pluralism, contributes for the cha- to the chances for democratic success. Now, again, I, I think that what he's sort of forgetting is um, 
is, is sort of is, is American um, promotion of its own interests. You know, I mean, they were still not they're still not even keen now on um, AMLO in Mexico. You know, there's the, the economist already has written, oh, will he go too far? Maybe there should be a coup, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there I'd say also we have to say the U.S. is willing to um, sort of promote and strengthen democracies where it's in its interest to do so. But yeah, and the relative economic wealth, I think, is a cover for um, a significant import-export partner with the U.S. You know, um, it, it or make this country... If, I, if we go back to Emmanuel Wallerstein, we can say, you know, it's well, yeah, they have relative wealth and they can sort of have sort of more political pluralism because, you know, they are... They've gone from peripheral nations to core nations. You know, Japan was a peripheral nation until it had its, its economic miracle in the 1980s. Um, you know, it's uh, the, the the Asian tigers, you know, all, all this stuff is Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong. Anyway, um, and he's but he, he goes on that, you know, within regions, whether it's in the former communist world of sub-Saharan Africa, it is evident that the specific institutional legacies from predecessor regimes strongly affect the outcomes of attempted transitions in which, you know, again, Thomas Carruthers accidentally does dialectics. You know, of course, the the nature of the previous situation will define sort of certain elements of the subsequent situation. It's interesting that as a lot of these um, sort of relatively uh, pompous um, uh, IR types sort of begin to question their own um, sort of so-called scientific so scientific style theories, uh, they sort of begin to get little tiny bits of Marxism just sort of drifting in, sort of looking at sort of all democ- for democracy oh, it turns out you need like, you need to actually have economic democratization and apparently there's a thesis and antithesis thing going on with the formation of new social structures oh my goodness did we just invent historical materialism i'm sure liberals would actually think that anyway so he's saying like where state building from scratch had to be carried out the core impulses and interests of the power holders and this is a bit of a long read but i, I think it's worth it such so as locking in access to power and resources as quickly as possible, ran directly contrary to what democracy building would have required. In countries with existing but extremely weak states, the democracy building efforts funded by donors usually neglected the issue of state building. With their frequent emphasis on diffusing power and weakening the relative power of the executive branch by strengthening the legislative and judi- judicial branches of government, and secondly, um, also by privatizing a bunch of shit and sort of thinking of democracy as operated as sort of running on the free market you know you um, end up with uh, sort of just fire sales of state assets you know i'm sorry i'll go back to it um uh, uh, uh and encouraging decentralization so that's decentralization he's just getting carruthers doesn't mention it uh and building civil society uh, they were more about the redistribution of state power than about state building. The programs that democracy promoters have directed at governance have tended to be minor technocratic efforts, such as training ministerial staff or aiding cabinet offices, rather than major efforts at bolstering state capacity. Now, when we think of bolstering state capacity, I mean, I, I, we've we've tried to do that quite a bit. I mean, personally, I think the best way to bolster state capacity is a mass redistribution of resources. Again, Carruthers probably doesn't credit that idea. Um, in fact, this is sort of where Carruthers' paper, which I think has been brutally honest about um, what democracy promotion is and what you, how, how it has dovetailed with U.S. foreign policy interests and why it's impossible to view as some kind of natural process. Um, it sort of tapers out here where he doesn't, he doesn't really know what it means, I think, to sort of radically bolster state capacity. 
because if you're a Carnegie guy working in democracy promotion in South America in the 1980s, are you really, you really want to bolster state capacity that much? You know, if you're looking at a country that's got that's do engage in an experiment of sort of truck of radical economic democratization like Venezuela, are you really trying to bolster that state's capacity? Are you really trying to bolster Cuba's capacity? Like you never stop being an American foreign policy spook. Um, you know, even if you are working for one of the ghoul um, addendum institutions like Carnegie. So, you know, I, I, I don't really sort of credit him much there, but I'm not that interested in what Thomas Carruthers thinks of as sort of bolstering state capacity in a real way. I'm much more interested in what Carruthers has done here um, as a kind of act of truth-telling that is so very, 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 very rare um, in, in international relations or international uh, policy or foreign policy literature. Um, it's usually very sort of blinkeredly pro-Western. It sort of has pretensions to science that just make it seem ridiculous. And it, it, it tends to be written sort of by and for practitioners who just love smelling their own farts. This is a rare example of of a paper that isn't that, and I think it's a, for me anyway, it's a really interesting look into the ways in which America sees its role in the world, and and, and the ways in which sort of this discipline sort of has shaped um, many people's lived experiences because it allows the dumbass theories of you know dipshit rich kids who went to Harvard. Um, to actually then go and shape policy and U.S. policy towards countries that might be in sort of moments of you know um, political turmoil. Anyway, uh, so that's a very that's a new kind of commie of commie book club. It's why it's the festive book club because this was certainly not a commie book. It was neither commie nor a book. Um, but I do hope you enjoyed this introduction to sort of what uh, this discipline is and does. Um, and, and this sort of one moment of accidental honesty <laughs> that uh, sort of came out of its, its reckoning with itself in the aftermath of 9-11 and the aftermath of sort of um, the sort of moment of unipolarity in the 1990s. Uh, you know, if you have any questions, but usually I don't encourage <laughs> people to be, yeah, if you have any questions, if you do have any questions, I actually like talking about this stuff. So do let me know. My DMs are open. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, Thank you, as as ever, for uh, listening. If you're listening to this on the day it's released, thank you for being a Patreon subscriber. If you're listening to this when it gets unlocked next month, consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. Uh, I wonder how Brexit will have gone. Um, dear, dear future Riley, I hope Brexit's gone very well. Uh, anyway, our uh, theme song, as ever, is Here We Go by Ginseng. You can find it on Spotify. And as ever, you can commodify your descent with a t-shirt from Little Comrade. Perhaps you'd like to get one of the um, five core assumptions of the transition paradigm on, on a t-shirt from Edie. You could really confuse the shit out of her. Uh, and, and wouldn't that be fun for all of us? Anyway, this has been another Riley solo episode. Finished and signing off. Good night. Good night.